verses 11 to 14. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thirty-five years ago, I had my first taste of the real politique of church life. Now, I know that for many of us, we think, politics in the church? <gasps> Heavens, that can't be. You're shocked, I know, you're shocked. But there I was, a 20-year-old delegate from my little Mennonite congregation attending the big national gathering. Basically, I had time on my hands. It was between painting jobs, so I could take a week off and go to Minneapolis. And nobody else really wanted to go, so they said, yeah, Jeff, you go. Have a good time. So I did. 20 years old in the big city of Minneapolis, at least slightly bigger than Oklahoma City. And uh, sitting in these long, and looking back on them, boring meetings of several hundred, almost all men, uh, who seemed to like the sound of their own voices. So I was in fairly good company. And uh, 1980, for those of you who weren't alive back then, yes, I see that hand, and uh, uh, for those of you who are old enough to have been alive back then, but like me, can barely remember it, uh, 1980 was a watershed year. There, there were wars and rumors of war. Uh, there was... Uh, there was an, a, 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 a dis-ease in the land in 1980. Inflation was sky high, interest rates were sky high, the Soviet Union was on the move around the world, and President Carter, against his better judgment, came out and announced that registration for the draft would be resuming. Now, I was a good Mennonite college kid. And I was going to be in that first group of people to have to register for the draft. And I confess I was conflicted about that. I had grown up in a, in a household where, where war and military strategy was often the dinner table conversation. My, on my dad's bookshelf was Clausewitz's classic on war. Um, my dad taught me the value of reading the autobiography of Ulysses S. Grant every year for devotional reading. Um, because it's a classic in how to give orders. Um, my, my dad, who had been an officer in the army, had a saying, any order that can be misunderstood will be misunderstood. And Grant, of course, was great at being able to give orders concisely, but in enough detail that they could be executed by his uh, underlings uh, effectively. So I had grown up in a home where, where the use of force for good 
or at least for the perception of good, was, was part and parcel of everyday life. But I had become a believer and a follower of Jesus in a church that said, not so fast. Maybe there are other ways of redeeming bad situations than simply through violence. Now, that had been a shock to me as a teenager, and I had wrestled with it for a long time, but through study and prayer and through really good professors in my undergraduate years, I'd, I'd come out thinking that, yeah, the way of Jesus is the way of peace. So I sit in this auditorium, this hot gymnasium in Minneapolis on a summer afternoon, listening to leaders in my church say, eh, maybe this peace position thing's a bunch of hooey. Maybe we need to let it go because it gets in the way of evangelism. We People aren't as interested in us because of our funny theology. Now, I may have been 20, but I was still snarky and precocious. Those things haven't changed. And at one point in the discussion, I found myself having an out-of-body experience as I got up and walked to the microphone. Now, you all know me. I'm, I, that's not something I would easily do, right? Oh, well. I walked to the microphone, and, and, and I, I addressed this august body of pastors and church leaders and seminary professors and mission executives and, and said, brothers and a few sisters, uh, I'm probably the only person in this room that your debate really affects in the immediate because I'm the only person in this room who's going to have to go home and fill out a little card at the post office and say, yeah, I'm, I'm pre-registering for the event of a draft. So what you talk about here impacts my life way more than it impacts your life. So I thought maybe you should hear the perspective of, of a person who it impacts. And I paused for a moment, thinking it was for dramatic effect, and, and said, you know, I, I really don't know where all this conversation is coming from. As, 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 I've, as I've read scripture and as I've read our spiritual fathers like Menno Simons and others, I've, I've come to the conclusion that we ought to stick to our guns on the peace position. <laughs> now, I want to promise you, I didn't say that with irony at that time. I, that's just the way the son of James L. Wright talked. You know, if, if a military analogy could be used, use it. So sticking to your guns on the peace position just made perfect sense. <laughs> well, the ripple of laughter was a bit like what, I, what we've experienced here this morning. It's like, did he really say that? That's, that's really, that's funny, snarky. And we're not going to pay any attention to it, but it is funny. And I went back to my seat and guy that would eventually become my New Testament professor in seminary years later came up to me and thanked me for having the courage of my convictions. 
and I couldn't, I couldn't bring the words to, to formation at that point that it really wasn't so much the courage of my convictions. It's, I, didn't even, I didn't have anything else in my rhetorical repertoire other than stick to your guns. It's just what I knew to say. We, we live in a world that is saturated with images of violence, sticking to our guns on the peace position was the best I could do as a 20-year-old smarmy kid from Oklahoma. But it remains for me a, a truth that, that there is a stubborn call throughout Scripture to pursue peace we can go to the Bible, and I specifically chose a passage from the Old Testament today because that often becomes the source of argument. Well, the Old Testament's full of violence. It is. Because the Old Testament is full of stories of our brokenness. The Old Testament is full of stories of how we didn't do it right as God's people. And how God had to redeem that time. But the scriptures call us stubbornly, unyieldingly, over and over again to pursue peace. They don't call us to be pacifist in the, in the sense that we've constructed that image in our society. Someone who, who hangs back from violence, who lets others fight for him, who who lives on the laurels and the well-being of other people's violent good efforts. That's not what Scripture calls us to. Scripture calls us to a stubborn, ongoing challenge to reduce violence in our world. That, that the world of, as it is, headed towards the world as God intends it to be, requires of us in our acts of hospitality to reduce, to eradicate, to eliminate violence in our midst. We're never going to get it all right. We're never going to get it perfect. But we are called to stick to our guns. We've been talking about the core values of the Brethren in Christ Church for the last number of weeks. We've talked about how God is at work redeeming the world, and it's his actions of grace and love, and the story, the narrative that he's created through Scripture that, that give us the, the scope of that, of that redemptive effort, we realize that our response to that is to become a community of worship, a community of discipleship, a community of love and acceptance and forgiveness of one another, that our expression of redemption is here, that if you want to really heal the world, to, to be really candid about it, and maybe out on the edge a little bit, if you want to heal the world, go to church. Be part of a Christian community that will make a difference. 
But our calling, our mission, if the, the mission of God is the redemption of the cosmos, our mission is not to redeem the cosmos. Our, 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 God's taking care of that. Our mission is to welcome the world that God's redeeming. And we do that through acts of outward hospitality and actions of inward alignment. And the three acts of outward hospitality that we embrace as the brethren in Christ is the act of evangelism, the act of invitation. Doesn't make any sense to throw a dinner party if you're not going, not going to invite anybody to join you at the table. And evangelism is simply inviting people into the acts of God in our lives. The outward act of hospitality that is compassion, that recognizes the need of others and that reaches out with them, not down to them, but across with them and embraces them into our lives. And then finally, the outward hospitality of peacemaking, of of living in a way that has reverence for the world that God is redeeming. It makes absolutely no sense for us to talk about the redemption of God, His work in redeeming the cosmos, if we don't have reverence for that world. And so if we think our acts of violence can hasten God's redemptive work or further God's redemptive work, we have indulged ourselves in a great adventure and missing the point. We may find ourselves without any other option. We may have to stick to our guns. But it's a lesser choice. Because the scriptures call us over and over and over again to seek peace and pursue it. The Brethren in Christ's core value simply reads, we value all human life and promote forgiveness, understanding, reconciliation, and nonviolent resolution of conflict. It doesn't say you have to not have a gun. It doesn't say you have to not play football. It doesn't say you can't be a cop. It doesn't say any of those things. Sometimes it gets overinterpreted to say those things. But our core value is that we revere all that God has created and all that God is redeeming. And if we revere it, why would we kill it? And so Psalm 34 becomes for us an invitation into the peace-filled life. Psalm 34 is, first of all, a song of thanksgiving. But it's also a wisdom hymn. And it's a, it's a commentary, it's a midrash on a story that comes to us in 1 Samuel 21. David is in mortal danger. He has been anointed by, by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And the present king of Israel, Saul, who is not his biological father, and who has a son that he would very much like to see be king, because kings are hereditary positions. Saul is none too happy with this. And he has occasionally let David know of his displeasure, including chucking a spear at him. And, and so, even though David is God's anointed, Saul is still in power. And David and presumably the retainers around him, the men that were in his company, fleed 
They, they left Israel and they defected. They defected to the enemy, to Philistia, to Israel's ancient enemy. This is the worst possible political move you could imagine. This is, this is you know, the heir apparent of power in Israel going and, and showing up at the Russian embassy seeking asylum or at the Iranian embassy seeking asylum. I know, let me go to my enemy and see if he'll look after me because Saul wants me dead. Well, the king of Philistia, which is an office called Abimelech, like Egypt's kings are called pharaohs, Abimelech meets David and knows a bit of his story and he's not really thrilled to have David in his territory. This is just going to make things more difficult with an ancient enemy, Israel. This is not good for trade or for business or for geopolitics. David is a nuisance. He's a problem underfoot and maybe we should get rid of him. Now it's presumable that David had enough men in, in his retainer because once the word gets out that you're God's anointed in Israel, you begin to attract followers. It's, it's, it's presumable that David could have staged a palace coup against Abimelech. He could have, he could have killed the king of Philistia, set up a puppet regime, and had two for the price of one, made Saul's life terrible, and created a political kind of unity in Palestinian lands that those lands have never seen. But David doesn't do that. Instead, he, he plays on the, on the possibility of weakness. He feigns insanity. He acts crazy in front of the Philistine king. And the king says, this guy's clearly lost his marbles, take him gently away, don't hurt him, just make sure he doesn't hurt himself or anybody else. Shrewd move. The political eyes of the universe turn away from David and turn back to other things, and David is left to consolidate his power to understand more clearly what God's call is on his life and to be in a position where when Saul and Jonathan are ultimately killed in battle, David becomes king of Israel. This psalm, Psalm 34, is written with that story as a background, with that story in mind. And in verses 11 to 14, we have this invitation to this peace-filled life. And it's framed in terms of the question, how, how do we fear the Lord? How, how do we fear God? Now, Fearing God has been one of those phrases for discussion that have, that have left us in the church puzzled for generations. And I don't, I, I don't promise that I'll clear it up for us this morning other than to say it's very interesting the archaeologists have found 14th century B.C. inscriptions in Egypt about the fear of the Lord. And how do we find the fear of the Lord? Well, the 14th century B.C. is 
about historically when we think the Exodus might have taken place. Well, if that's true, and if two and two equals four, and, and in the world of archaeology and Middle Eastern politics, two and two does not always equal four, but just assuming it does in this case. It means that at the very moment Moses is trying to lead his people, people throughout Egypt, from the powerful to the lowliest, are asking, how do we fear God? Now they're asking it in different ways, they have different understandings, they have different frameworks, but, but it's a seminal question. And it becomes rooted in Israel's faith and life, in its theology. It becomes the, becomes the central theological question of Israel. How do we fear the Lord? How do we honor the Lord? How do we reverence the Lord? How do we live in obedience to the Lord? And that question gets answered in different ways throughout Israel's history. Some ways quite meaningfully, other ways not so much. But it becomes the oldest question in Hebrew faith and life. And so that's where the psalmist starts in this passage, in this part of the psalm. How do we fear the Lord? How do we live a full and meaningful life? And he says that there's an ethic and a way of worship based on three behaviors. Truth-telling, verse 13. Doing good, first half of verse 14. And seeking shalom, second half of verse 14. Truth-telling, doing good, seeking shalom. We might say, well, aren't those all just the same thing? Maybe. But I think what the psalmist is doing is laying out a holistic ethic. Tell the truth. Your, your response to the world matters. Say truthful things. It's an individual call to an ethic. To do good isn't just, here's a punch list of good things that you ought to do, but it's, it's be discerning of what good is and follow that. It's a call, it's a communal call. And then seeking shalom. Create a society full of justice. Jeremiah will take this word shalom and say to the exiles that have been sent away from Israel, uh, go live in the cities that God has put you in and seek their peace. For when you seek their peace and you seek their shalom, you find your shalom. You're invested in a society. So there's an individual, a corporate, and a societal call in Psalm 34 to a way of life that seeks peace and pursues it. And so the question becomes, how do we seek shalom in a violent world? And I think this psalm gives us, gives us five ways to proceed. First way is to start early. The psalmist says, listen, my children. It's a deliberate word. It's a deliberate choice of a word. Listen, listen, young people. We, we begin the road to peace or the road to violence at an early age. Uh, I still haven't washed all the Clausewitz and Sun Tzu out of my soul. I still have to work at it. Uh, especially when you figure out who I am on the Enneagram or in the Myers-Briggs. I, I, I like being the general in charge of an army. 
I, I groove on the power. Uh, I, I confess that. And, and my constant confession of that is hopefully saving me. But it's about starting early in teaching peace, in teaching that there are ways to solve differences that don't need to resort to violence. At the risk of sounding like a really snarky grandfather, which I guess I am, I watch my daughter and the way she raises her twin sons. And twins have a kind of, of uh, telepathic way of getting into each other's space and slapping each other around. I mean, it just happens. And to watch my daughter lovingly show them nonviolent options, even at less than two, uh, makes me very proud of her and makes me realize she learned some things that I didn't along the way. Start early. The, 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 the cultivation of peace begins with our children. But we have to also cultivate not just the absence of conflict, we have to cultivate the love of life. The, the psalmist says the fear of the Lord is, is bound up in this, in, in this desire to live a full and meaningful life. We have, to, we have to cultivate a love for life. We have to cultivate a love for what God has created and a love for, for what God's creation has created. And so teaching us one another how to, how to love God's creation and how to love our neighborhoods, how to love city landscapes and skyscapes and how to love rivers and, and fields. To, uh, to discover how to love all that God has made and all that we have made because God has made us. Cultivating a love for life. Shalom also comes thirdly through a commitment to telling the truth. We struggle with that. Because we know if we tell the truth, somebody's going to get offended. If, 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 I, if I go to the pastor and I say, I really don't like it, pastor, that you preach so long, I'm going to offend him. And worse yet, he may preach longer next Sunday. Uh, yes, you should be afraid of that. No. Um, but fundamental to shalom is a commitment to the truth. It's a commitment to telling each other the truth, to living in the truth, and, and to not so much for the purpose of making sure you agree with me, I've got the truth and you better come on board, but in terms of being able to know where each other is at and to be okay with that and to know that we will disagree. You know, truth sets you free, but it also creates disagreements. And it's our capacity as a community to disagree in healthy ways, which is not the same thing as saying, whatever. You know, you, you have your view and I have my view, and we'll just, you know, ain't it cool that we occasionally get together? We'll agree to disagree. That's not what we're talking about here. It's that we live in the hard work of learning and telling each other the truth, knowing that none of us have a total picture of it. Not even me, I have to confess, although I'd like to pretend I do. But telling the truth 
to one another. Create shalom. Being discerning. Being people who, who, who are able to look down the road and say, what, what's God doing in the future? What, where are we headed? How shall we act as a people together? It's tempting for us as Christians to fly by the seat of the pants because we think the Holy Spirit's just going to, you know, grab us by our diaper and take us where we need to land. But it doesn't work that way. God's, God's call to us is to be a people who, who have bifocal vision, who can see the immediate need up close, but who can also see well the distant horizon and know how to steer for it. And then finally, the fifth thing that I think this passage tells us is don't lose hope. Don't give up. The, the work of shalom is hard and long and difficult, but don't give up on it. Because when we give up on it, all we've got left is the myth of redemptive violence. All we've got left is this mythology that I can draw my gun faster than the other guy can and win. And it's a myth. I, I think one of the most pacifist movies I've ever seen was John Wayne's last movie, The Shootist, where he realizes his life as a hired gun has largely been for naught, has largely had no real lasting benefit or effect in the world. And whereas a man who has lived by drawing his gun, he'll have to die that way too. And the kind of sadness and pathos in that, and the kind of rejection of violence as a redemptive act is a powerful message. Wayne's last movie says, don't lose hope. You can change even at the end of life. We seek shalom in a violent world by not giving up on the promise of peace. So this morning, some questions for your reflection. You know, our, our normal uh, response is to say, Christians are under attack in this country and we're fighting back. What do you expect us to do? Turn the other cheek? Love our enemies? Beat our swords into plowshares? And Jesus, in the corner, says, well, actually... Yes, that's what I'm asking you to do. And so this morning, how do we teach one another the art and skill of forgiveness? Forgiveness is not a natural trait, not a natural act. How do we teach each other how to forgive? How do we cultivate understanding across all the barriers and boundaries that the world as it is maintains? There are all kinds of barriers, all kinds of boundaries that are set up for us not to cross. And we know that what Jesus did was he broke down all of those barriers. The wall of, in, in, of enmity that divides us and made us one people. How do we tell the truth in such a way that enemies are reconciled into friends? How does truth telling become reconciling instead of dividing? How do we discern and practice the reduction of violence in the world? And how do we maintain hope? 
For me, it's the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that give me direction and comfort. When he writes in his sermon, Loving Your Enemies, in the book Strength to Love, to our most bitter opponents we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we shall wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, not only, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Brothers and sisters, that's the call of peace. To not settle for the single victory of might making right but to stick to our guns for the double victory that is possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are called to live as people of peace, not as lily-livered pacifists, but as people who live a robust, truth-telling, reconciling, peacemaking way of life. A way of life that we symbolize and embody and incarnate in our daily walk and in our worship at the table. And so we come to the Lord's table to remember and to celebrate God's peacemaking work in us. Amen. <laughs>